You can be seated. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to grab it and make your way to 2 Kings chapter 5. That's on page 311 in the hardback black Bibles uh, in the seats around you. <clears throat> Excuse me. I may have a little bit of this, a little bit of that this morning because uh, yesterday, John and Chad and I returned from our annual pastor's retreat, aka a hike for three days on the Appalachian Trail. And so we got back from yesterday. So Chad, in a moment, is going to waddle down the stairs. You can watch him waddle. We're all a bit sore, all a bit uncomfortable. Uh, but one of the things, like as I think about our trip every year and I start planning for it and I start researching, you know, getting us ready for it and that sort of thing. Every year I know going into that trip that it's going to be hard. Okay. Every year going into that trip. <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> every year going into the trip, I know it's going to be hard. Every year going into the trip, I know we're going to see some amazing sights. And every year going into the trip, I know that we are going to have some kind of stink when we come off the trail, all right? So I know all those things, like I know them up here, but then when we get out on the trail and it actually happens, I'm a bit surprised by how hard it is, I'm a bit surprised by how beautiful it is, and I'm a bit surprised by how bad the stink actually is. It is it's bad, okay? The shoes, we got wet, there was rained on us, it was bad. But the thing about it, like, is, like, I know that, okay, I know it's going to happen, and then I'm a little bit surprised by it when it actually does happen. And this morning as we look in 2 Kings chapter 5, I'm hoping that'll kind of be what happens for all of us in this room as we think about grace. Because many of us in this room, we know a little bit about grace. We know it. But I'm hoping this morning as we look at this story of Naaman, this Syrian warlord, all right, as we see the grace of God in his life, I'm hoping this morning that we might be a bit surprised as we look at God's grace, as we look at God's grace in who he pours his grace out on and like in, in how it works, like that we might be surprised a little bit about some truths about God's grace. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning, uh, surprised by grace. And I'm hoping we'll see a couple of truths that are surprising about God's grace and we'll be surprised about that as we make our way through it. And so I'm going to share a couple of truths about God's grace, but let's just get started by reading the bulk of the story. So if you look, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of... Thank you. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his, mas with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. And so immediately we see that Naaman's this, this great man, okay? He's basically the prime minister of Syria. He's, you know, the commander-in-chief of the army. He's got a lot of responsibilities, super respected. He's wealthy. He's well-known. He's sophisticated. All of these things. This is who he is. And it says here that God has given this pagan victory over Israel, which is just a little reminder of the total sovereignty of God. That he is sovereign over both international politics and individual circumstances. Okay, he, he's got, like, he's in control uh, of the big picture and the minor details. One guy put it like this. His sway extends from parliaments and war departments to the doorknobs and phone calls and parking places of life. And so you have this great man, Naaman, 
pagan sinner, far from God, but a, an amazing guy, a lot of power. And then God, in a move of grace that might surprise us, gives him leprosy. And so we get verse 2. Now the Syrians, Syrians on one of their raids <clears throat> had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, that's the king, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel, and the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman, he, so he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And so apparently Naaman had some experience with medical bills because he took like his entire investment portfolio. Like if you total that out, it's over three million dollars modern day. So takes all of that and goes to the king. Verse 6, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends me word to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. And so the king freaks out. He thinks that Syria's just trying to put up this front so that they can start a war with him. But verse 8, But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots, and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he, he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. All right, so he's lost more than his leprosy. He's lost his paganism as well. So accept now a present from your servant. But he, Elisha, said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And then Naaman said, If not, please let me be given 
Let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, dirt. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. And so as you can see, like this whole story here is not just about a man being cleansed from leprosy, but being cleansed spiritually. All right, Both of those things are happening. It's a parallel story. And the reality is that we all need to be cleansed. And it's only possible through this surprising grace of God. And so again, what I want to do in the remainder of our time is give you three truths about God's grace. All right, Three truths about God's grace. And the first one is this. God's grace is offensive. Okay, God's grace, number one in your notes, is offensive. And I'm going to give you three sub-points. I didn't load them, underlines in there. Let me go ahead and just throw those to you. Sub-point A, sub-point B, and sub-point C. A, God's grace is offensive because it humbles us. Okay, it's offensive because it humbles us. Letter B, God's grace is offensive because it's exclusive. Okay, it's exclusive. And then letter C, God's grace is offensive because it's free. Okay, because it's free. We're going to walk through those. All of these are offensive to sinful humanity. And so notice the humbling, first of all. Like God's already started it because he's given this great man leprosy. So he's starting to humble him. But then Mr. Big Shot, Mr. Pridefield Naaman, right? He goes to the king and then Elisha says, send him, send him here. He comes to Elisha's house, pulls up with his entourage of chariots, his $3 million in cash at Elisha's house. And verse 10, Elisha doesn't even go out to say hello. He sends a messenger. In other words, he's trying to teach them, teach him, as we would say in Pine Log, and this may offend some of you, so I apologize in advance. Naaman, you may think you're hot snot on a silver platter, but you ain't nothing but cold boogers on a paper plate. <laughs> in other words, Naaman, you're not better than anybody else. You're not better than anybody else. We're all broken. We're all busted up. We're all in need of cleansing. And so, friends, listen to me. The gospel first must humble us before it heals us. The gospel, first of all, has to humble us before it heals us. And that's offensive. We don't like that. But it's also grace. See, all spiritual progress requires a humbling. All, all spiritual progress requires a humbling. For the believer, it is impossible to grow in Christ while walking in pride. And for the unbeliever, it is impossible to come to Christ while walking in pride. We have to come to a place of humility where we admit that we have a need, and it's a need that we cannot fix ourselves it's a need that we can't fix no matter how much money we have, no matter how much clout we have, no matter how much, uh, you know, what kind of network we have, what kind of position we have, that we are just like everyone around us. We are in need of grace. And so the gospel, first of all, must humble us before it heals us. And so God's at work in Naaman's life, humbling him by giving him leprosy, humbling him by showing him he's no better than anyone else. And humbling him by the instructions for healing that Elisha gives him. And not only do the instructions humble him, 
they enrage him. See, Naaman in verse 11, he's expecting like a faith healing event. Like the waving of the hand, an incantation, boom, leprosy gone. That's what he expects, that's what he wants. But that's not what happens. Instead, Elisha tells him, hey, go down to the Jordan and wash seven times. And he's ticked. He's like, washing the Jordan? Anybody can do that. Don't you know who I am? I'm a big shot. I'm a big deal. I'm not going to wash in the Jordan. And besides, that thing's nasty. It smells. I'm not going down there. And so verse 12, Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And listen, on the one hand, I get it. Like, nobody wants to go for a swim in a nasty river. I remember a couple years ago, Steve Qualls and I went down to Iquitos, Peru, to explore uh, one of our ministry partners, Not Forgotten. And in Iquitos, you've got several rivers coming together. The big one's the Amazon, but there's an area called the Baylin District. And it's a smaller river that flows through there, and that thing's nasty. It's a, I mean, it's a very, very depressing um, Area. A lot of the houses, they're, they're floating, so they go up and down as the river swells throughout the year. And they have outhouses. Every single one of them has an outhouse on the river. And so someone will be in an outhouse right here. And then where their stand is, just down, is someone washing their dishes, washing their clothes, right? So it is, an, it is super, super nasty. I'm not about to go swimming there, right? Now, after we took a motorized canoe up you know, upriver for about an hour. I was more than happy to go swimming and did so with some boys at one of the orphanages we visited. And so I get it on the one hand about not wanting to go into nasty water, but I think in reality, Naaman's reasoning was actually deeper than just like thinking his rivers in Damascus were better and that this one was smelly. I think primarily what it had to do with is that Elisha did not like the fact or Naaman did not like the fact that Elisha had said, this is the only way. This is the one way, this is the only way you must bathe seven times in this river. Naaman wants another way for salvation from leprosy. Can't there be some other way than that way? And similarly, many people today want there to be other ways to salvation than through Jesus. But there's not. Right? Jesus himself says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so letter B, God's grace is offen offensive because it's exclusive. It's exclusive. It, it says that one religion is right and all the others are wrong. It says that one sacred scripture is right and all the others are wrong. It says that there's one path to God that is right and all the others are wrong. And now listen to me. Sometimes, straight up, Christians are stupid, narrow-minded bigots. And we major on things that aren't the, the main point. We'll become bigots on things that aren't central questions of life. Politics, choices on you know, schools, uh, how you should think about justice, and all these sorts of things. I could go on and on and on. And so sometimes, Christians, we are narrow-minded idiots. Okay, can we just agree on that? Like, we are. Amen. Thank you. We are sometimes. Okay? 
but on the exclusivity of Christ, we are rightfully, properly, and necessarily narrow-minded because Jesus is. Again, Jesus says, I am the way. That's singular. The truth, singular. The life, singular. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so it's this exclusive claim that's offensive. And that many people get all worked up over. But here's what I think a lot of times people who maybe get worked up over it, maybe us ourselves, this is what we miss. Jesus made a way. Right? Like he didn't have to. He does not owe us that. We have sinned. We have rebelled. We have rejected God by our sin. Every time we sin is a rejection of God. Every time. Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied in God. Every time we sin, we are rejecting God. Every single time. That's what we have done. We do not deserve salvation. We do not deserve for there to be a way. And the fact that Christ has made a way should floor us. He didn't have to, but He did because He loves you. And He wants to save you. He wants to adopt you into His family. And so that's the, like before we get all worked up about, you know, there's only one way we need to recognize He made a way. He didn't have to. He provided a way for us to be freed from our sin, freed from eternity in hell, a way for us to know Him. And that way is Jesus. Jesus bore the wrath of God against our sin that we deserve. He lived a life of perfection in the place of our life of imperfection. He died an undeserved death in the place of our deserved death for our sin. He was our substitute. And he rose again in victory over sin and death so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life. There is a way that you can be rescued. There's a way that you can be saved. But you can only come to Christ on his terms, not on your own. Why? Because God sets the terms. Because he's God, not us. The clay cannot talk back to the potter. And so Naaman's mad. This one way going to Jordan, I'm not doing that. I am not doing that. But his servants get it. They get exactly what we're talking about. Naaman, don't be freaked out that there's only this one way. Like There is a way for you to be healed from your leprosy. Go get in the river. And so verse 14, So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And so God, in his surprising and offensive grace, is humbling Naaman. He's showing them that he saves not on Naaman's terms, but on God and on his own terms, all right? That salvation is exclusive. And there's one more way that God's grace is offensive in this story, and it's that it's free, all right? Letter C, God's grace is offensive because it's free. It's free. And this is insulting to Naaman. Now, Naaman came prepared to buy it, right? He came with all this money. He's prepared to buy it. Or at least he would like for Elisha to tell him to go do some great thing and earn it, right? right go get the broom of the wicked witch of the West 
and bring that back to me, then I'll give you your reward, right? That's what he would like. He would love to go do something, slay the dragon, bring back the thing, do something extraordinary to earn his healing. But that's not how it works with God's grace. God's grace is free. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't work for it. All you can do is receive it. It's just say, yes, I'll take that. You, you say you'll give me a new life? I'll take that. And once again, this is humbling. We don't like this. Like if I can earn, if I can do something, that, that means I've, I've, you know, I've done something. I've contributed somehow. I've done something to make me worthy. And it gives me then something to feel proud about. Something to make me feel like I'm, I'm better than others because I did this thing. Y'all didn't do it, but I did this thing and I've earned my salvation. I've done this thing. But when grace is free, it robs us of that. And we can't walk with a swagger because we didn't do anything. And so part of what God's free grace is doing in our life is showing us like not only can you not earn your salvation, but again, it's humbling us because it's showing us that we are on equal footing with everybody else. We are in need of grace. And you can't feel superior to anyone because you didn't do anything. But I want you to see the flip side of that coin as well because this is really, really good news. Grace also means that you don't ever have to feel inferior to anyone else. See, when we get that we are all equal at the foot of the cross, our identity is taken completely out of a, a whole back and forth pendulum that a lot of us, me included, live in so often where when you have a good week, you start to feel pretty good about yourself and you become a little self-righteous. And man, look what I did this week. I lived a pretty good week. I was holy. I had every quiet time every morning. I didn't cuss. I didn't, you know, I didn't, it was a perfect week. I didn't get enraged on the road. I did everything. It was great. And then you have a bad week, and you don't live up to your standards. Well, now you hate yourself, and you're beating yourself up all week long. I can't believe I did it again. I can't believe I did it again. And that's the way that a lot of us live. Again, if we can be honest. But it's gone if you realize you're saved by grace. Then you realize, yes, that you are so sinful that the only way you could be saved is if God gives grace. But on the same side, you realize that once you have received this grace, not by works, you're not up and down. You're saved. You're accepted. Like, it's yours. You can't lose it. Like, you have a bad week and it's taken from you. That doesn't, that doesn't happen. Right? It's yours. You're not up and down all the time. You can get off the merry-go-round. You can get off the yo-yo of your life. And so while the free grace of God can be offensive because we don't do anything and we desperately want to earn it, on the other side, it's freeing. Because you can get off the treadmill of performance-driven Christianity. Ephesians 2 says, It is by grace... That you have been saved, right? It is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this, the grace and the faith, is not of yourself. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. 
You didn't do anything. Jesus did. And so all the glory goes to Jesus. And so understand well, you don't have to do anything to become a Christian. You don't have to do anything to become a Christian. Okay, you come to Jesus as you are, and you receive Jesus alone. That's what you need. You need Jesus. You need His grace. You don't have to, there are no prerequisites. You just come to Jesus as you are. But when you come to Jesus, He is going to reshape you. He is going to change you. He's going to reshape the way you view the world. He's going to reshape the, your, your worldview. And things in your life are going to change. Just as it does in Naaman's life. Because in verse 15, we see that Naaman's skin wasn't the only thing that's changed. His mind and his heart changed as well. Look at verse 15 with me again. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. And so notice this, Naaman now, all right, after what's happened, now he confesses that Yahweh is, like Yahweh alone is God. And now he calls himself a servant of Elisha. Mr. Pride, Mr. Big Shot now refers to himself as a servant. Now he wants to give an offering to Elisha instead of buy his salvation. Now to make sure he doesn't get it confused, Elisha still refuses it. And then he says that he's not just like going to add Yahweh to his pantheon of gods, but rather he's turning from his statutes, from his false gods, and replacing them with the one and only true God. That's quite a transformation. And that's the second major truth we need to see about God's grace. So number two in your notes, God's grace is transformative. God's grace is transformative. And in Naaman's life, it's transformative. Now, obviously, he lost his leprosy. But as I said earlier, he also lost his paganism. He's been changed. He's not prideful anymore. He calls himself a servant. And so, like I said earlier, we come to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. No prerequisites to the gospel. But once you receive the gospel, this good news of salvation that's offered because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, once you receive that, it will, Jesus will change you. Okay, you cannot be the same person that you were prior to getting hit by a Mack truck of the gospel, right? You can't be the same person. It will impact you. It will change you. And he will keep changing you for the rest of your life. You will never get to some point of like, I'm good. I don't need changing anymore. I'm good. Like that's not going to happen. You will need it for the rest of your life. And Jesus will continue chipping away, chipping away, chipping away at your sin, refining you into his image for the rest of your life. And friends, it's this change 
and this ongoing change that gives evidence that you are, in fact, a Christian. Someone's like, well, what does the change look like? Well, it looks a lot like Naaman, right? You, you trust God now. You don't try to add God to your pantheon of other idols that you have in your life. No, you kick those to the curb and you trust in Jesus and you follow Jesus. And following means following, right? You strive to live the way Jesus calls you to. The way Jesus instructs us to for our own good because he's smarter than we are. He designed the world. He knows how it works best. So he says, live this way. Do this. These things, don't go that way. It's going to lead to heartbreak. Live this way. I'm not trying to keep you from, you know, joy. I'm trying to lead you into it. Don't buy the lies of the world. It says, joy's found here. Trust me. I designed the universe. So he says, follow me, right, for your good, but also for my glory. And it does not mean, listen, following Jesus, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. In fact, for some of us, it'll be really, 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 really hard. Out on the Appalachian Trail, since we're talking about that today, sometimes you'll come across a thru-hiker. And thru-hikers are a rough bunch on the whole, right? A lot of them are on drugs. We met people on the Appalachian Trail, and they're like, you know, Hopping on the trail is cheaper than rehab, so every time I have a relapse, I just go hiking, right? So you meet some rough people, but a lot of times you'll hear people and they'll say things like, yeah, I'm out here just trying to find myself, just trying to find out like who I really am. Friends, as Christians, we're not trying to find ourselves. We're trying to lose ourselves, okay? We're trying to die to ourselves and live for Jesus. That's what God's grace does in our life. Once we receive Christ, it changes us. God's grace is transformative. And then the final thing that this story teaches us about grace is number three, that God's grace is for everyone. That God's grace is for everyone, right? It's for Syrians as well as Jews, right? Naaman was a scoundrel. He had killed Israelites, he had raided them, he had attacked, he had pillaged, and yet God heals him and saves him, lavishes his grace upon him. And this is to show that grace, it is a free gift of God, not on the basis of works, but it's also to show the wideness of God's grace. And his grace is for the whole world. It is for anyone who will repent and believe. But when it comes to this wideness of God's grace, some believers are stingier than God. Secretly, they, we, resent the fact that God would show grace to other sinners who have different sin patterns than we do. This is certainly true in the prophet Jonah's life. He was so racist and so hate-filled against the people of Nineveh that he gets mad at God when, when, when he doesn't destroy them. He's like, ah, this is why I didn't want to come here, God. I knew that you were someone who was, you know, strong or who was slow in, in, in throwing down, you know, wrath. And you were abounding in, in mercy. And I knew if I came, you would forgive them. And ah, I'm so mad now. And then in Luke 4 that I read earlier, you kind of saw the same thing. 
After hearing Jesus talk about how, you know, Naaman had leprosy and there were other people in Israel had leprosy, but God only showed grace to Naaman and not to the people in Israel. The people listening to Jesus who were his hometown, who's in Nazareth, this was his hometown, they want to kill him. They want to throw him off the cliff because they wanted to keep God's grace to themselves. They did not want to share it with foreigners. They did not want to share it with enemies, the Syrians. They did not want to share it with people who, from their perspective, did not deserve to be saved. But again, an offensive truth of Scripture is that no one deserves to be saved. We've got to understand that. No one does. Naaman didn't. And neither did I. And neither did those of you who have trusted Christ in this room. You did not deserve it. But God offers grace to us. Surprising grace. His grace is unmerited. It should always be surprising. Justice makes sense. Grace does not. And it's grace that God gives that's wide enough for the whole world. And if Christ died, if you think about Romans 5, if Christ died, and it says, while we were yet in his enemies, then it should make sense to us that he's going to keep on saving people that we might think are our enemies. Friends, don't lose sight that the gospel is for the lostest of the lost. It's for Jews and for Gentiles. It's for Hindus and for Muslims. It's for heterosexuals and for homosexuals. It's for abortion doctors and for racists. It's for proud parents, greedy businessmen, and lazy 20-somethings that live in your basement. It is for the whole world, for every tribe, tongue, and nation. All glorifying Christ around His throne for His surprising and undeserved grace. So do not be stingy with the grace of God. Keep praying for the most hopeless of the lost. The wide, wide grace of God may reach them yet. But there's one last thing I want us to see. Besides God, obviously, who is the hero in this story? Like sometimes the actual heroes of stories aren't the main character. Right? So like if you've read The Lord of the Rings or you've even seen the movies, the hero of that story is not Frodo Baggins. It is Samwise Gamgee. That is the hero of that story. He's the one who makes sure Frodo gets to Mount Doom, right? In this story, the hero's not Naaman. He's just a recipient of grace. It's not even the prophet Elisha. He's not the hero of this story. No, the hero of this story is the unnamed little servant girl from verse 2 who is in Naaman's house because Naaman slaughtered her parents and trafficked her to be a labor slave. She's the hero of this story as she forgives and as she gives a picture of Jesus because she's a servant, right? And she's also suffering. Suffering servant, Jesus is the suffering servant. And so to help you kind of visualize this as I do sometimes, 
I'm going to read to you from a storybook Bible. This is called, and this is from the Jesus Storybook Bible. We give this away to every single person when we have a parent-child dedication. This has taught me more theology than probably three years of seminary. I commend it to you that much. A little servant girl and the proud general. The little slave girl and Naaman from 2 Kings 5. Naaman was a very important man in a very important army of a very important country. So you see, he was very, very, very important. But Naaman was sick. He had leprosy, which is a nasty thing that stops you from feeling anything. And bits of you fall off without you noticing, like bashed fingers and squished toes. It might sound funny, but it wasn't. And Naaman certainly wasn't laughing. There was no cure. It never went away, and in the end, it killed you. Naaman needed help. Now, there was a little slave girl who worked for Naaman, and she knew someone who could help him. But there was a problem. Naaman was her enemy. Not long before, Naaman had led an army raid on her home in Israel. He had killed her whole family, carried her off to Syria, and made her into his slave. And every night she cried herself to sleep. She had lost everything. Why would she, of all people, want to help Naaman? Didn't she hate him and want to hurt him back? Didn't she want to make him pay for the wrong he'd done? That's what you would expect. But instead of hating him, she loved him. Instead of hurting him back... She forgave him. I want Naaman to get well, she said to her mistress. There's a man in Israel called Elisha who can heal him. I'll go, said Naaman, loading up his wagons and putting on his flashing armor. But I'll go to the palace because that's where someone important like me gets healed. So he hurried off to Israel and he went straight to the king. My healing, please, he announced. I can do a lot of things, the king replied, but only God can heal. Just then a message from Elisha arrived. Send Naaman here, it read. So Naaman hurried off to Elisha's house, but Elisha didn't even come out and greet him. He just sent a servant instead. Doesn't Elisha realize who I am, Naaman thought? But what the servant said next made him even crosser. Wash in there, he said. Just wash, Naaman laughed. In that slimy, stinky river? He looked around to see if this was some kind of joke. It wasn't. Any person can wash in a river, he thought. I'm Naaman. I'm important. I should do something important so God will heal me. And he rode off in a rage. Now, of course, you and I both know that's not how God does things. All Naaman needed was nothing. And it was the one thing Naaman didn't have. God knew that Naaman was even sicker on the inside than he was on the outside. Naaman was proud. He thought he didn't need God. His heart didn't work properly. It couldn't feel anything. You see, Naaman had leprosy of his heart. God was not only going to heal Naaman's skin, he was going to heal his pride. Naaman finally agreed to wash in the river, and instantly his skin became smooth like a baby. Naaman wanted to pay Elisha. God healed you. 
You can't pay, Elisha said. It's free. And so it was that a very sick man was healed, all because of a little servant girl who forgave him. God knew sin was like leprosy. It stopped his children's hearts from working properly. And in the end, it would kill them. Years later, God was going to send another servant to forgive as she did. To forgive all of God's children and heal the terrible sickness in their hearts. Their hearts were broken. But God can mend broken hearts. Dear friends, afresh, be surprised by God's grace. A grace that's offensive, yet healing. A grace that's totally transformative. And a grace that's absolutely for everyone and anyone. And so like this little girl here, let's just seek to be a nobody. She's not even named. A nobody who tells everybody about somebody. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for free grace. It's humbling because we want to do something to earn it, but can't. We're too sinful. And you are too holy to just look past it, sweep it under the rug. You're too loving to do that. Sin is serious. It must be punished. There is justice And we all want that when it's some big thing, some evil person. But then we don't want it when it's us. And so we praise you for grace. And Father, would you help us as we sing a final song and as we contemplate this story to be surprised by grace in our own lives day by day little evidences of your grace, undeserved, unmerited, but given. And let us seek, like this little girl, to be dispensers of grace within our spheres of influence, speaking a word here, a word there, never knowing how that word may trickle down and affect eternity for those around us. And so we ask all of this in Jesus' name with great, great thanksgiving because you, oh God, are so kind. You're so good. You're so gracious. Oh, Father, we praise you for your grace. In your Son's name.